0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're lucky enough um, to have with us one of the leading, world-leading renowned academics. He's um, been called a philosopher with the profile of a rock star. He's an academic hero. Um, Recently written The Tyranny of Merit, What Has Become of the Common Good the one, the only, Professor Michael Sandel.
1: Thank
0: you.
2: Thank you, what a pleasure to be here, back at the Cambridge Union after quite a stretch of time. Thank you for coming. The subject I'd like to discuss with you today is meritocracy, or more precisely, the tyranny of merit. Now, the tyranny of merit, on the face of it, is a paradoxical thing. We normally think of merit as a good thing. If I need surgery, I want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it. That's merit. If I fly in an airplane, I want a well-qualified pilot at the controls, that's merit. So how could merit become a kind of tyranny? That's what I'd like to discuss with you today. Meritocracy is fundamentally a question about justice, about who deserves what and why. Sometimes when we debate who deserves what, we're talking about income and wealth, honor, power, opportunity. But sometimes we talk also about who governs. And I'd like to begin by putting to you a question about who governs or who should govern. And I would like to begin with a proposal made by John Stuart Mill, in the mid-19th century, there were debates going on about universal suffrage, about who should have the right to vote, and John Stuart Mill had a proposal. His proposal was that everyone should have the right to vote in a democracy, women included, but he also thought that the well-educated should have more votes. For example, an unskilled laborer should have a vote, a skilled laborer, perhaps two, a foreman or, or a supervisor, three, farmers and traders, four, professionals, lawyers, physicians, members of the clergy, perhaps five or six. And university graduates, at least six. He also suggested that for those who didn't have a degree, there should be a system of exams so that those who did have the requisite knowledge of public affairs uh, could qualify for as many votes as a university graduate. Now, I'd like to begin by asking what you think about John Stuart Mill's proposal. How many would be in favor? How many would be opposed? Will you do by a show, say by a show of hands which position you take? How many would be in favor of John Stuart Mill's proposal? Put up your hand. I see only about seven or eight brave souls How many are against, opposed? Most in the room. Now, more interesting than the votes are the reasons. Those of you who are opposed, what would be your reason? We will begin our discussion by offering your reason for opposing John Stuart Mill's proposal for plural voting, more votes for the better educated. Yes. Tell us your name. I'm Sammy. Sammy. So,
3: both that what we define as skilled or unskilled, educated or uneducated is subjective. And secondly, that if you're subject to the law of the state, everyone should be in equality under the law, and therefore there should be in equality in the decision making process.
2: An equality in the decision making process, if everyone is subject to the law. Everyone should have an equal voice in making the law. Those of you who oppose John Stuart Mill, was it for Sammy's reason, more or less, or is there someone who would like to add to that? Yes? I think
1: the result outcome will accelerate the social inequality.
2: That the result of the plural voting system would increase inequality. Yes. And why is that? Inequality. 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 Why is that? And what's your name? Uni. Uni. Why is that?
1: Because if... Well, I, I, uh, I agree to his opinion as well that definition is not clear. And also, if the people who are more educated make a decision that are good for them...
2: So you think that the better educated people... John Stuart Mill thought they would be better equipped to make good decisions. Not, not good decisions. But But you're saying decisions in their own interest. That's your worry. All right, so we have two objections to John Stuart Mill's system of plural voting. Uni's worry that the better educated may not necessarily be better at identifying the common good, more likely, they will define the common good in a way that serves their interests. Sammy makes the point that if everyone is governed by law, everyone should have an equal say in making the law. So two objections to John Stuart Mill. Now let's hear from those of you, the small number in the room, who, who are in favor of more votes for the better educated. You've heard the arguments against. What would you say in favor? Who has a reply? Yes. yes. Um, well, and what's your name? Corin. Corrin. Uh, I think people are better educated and make better decisions, but I sub the title in it in a very simple way. I think one thing will Can every I want to make sure everyone can hear? So first Corinne says, or here we have a microphone, so can you say it again,
1: Corinne? I think better educated people just have more knowledge, um, better critical thinking perhaps to be able to make decisions that are beneficial to the whole populace. If you give people who are not as well educated um, equal rights to vote, I do think to an extent those people could actually be making decisions that are detrimental to themselves, actually, if they're not necessarily aware of things like political ideology, if they, don't, if they can't properly decipher policies that would probably best interest them, if they're just not aware of those things. Obviously, um, determining or having equal access to education is something that is problematic. In an ideal world, everybody would be well educated, therefore everybody right. would have the right to vote. Um, I think that would be the target, but I do think there is, there is, it, it is ideal for better educated people to make. Okay,
2: so Corin's point, Corin's argument, Sammy, and I'm gonna come back to you to reply. Are you, are you gathering your force? Yes. All right, Corin's argument is, better educated people in general will make better decisions about how to govern. And furthermore, says, those with less education may not even be able to identify their own interests and to act accordingly. Sammy, what about that? I kind of oppose that
3: paternalistic approach for a few reasons. So, firstly, as I mentioned, what we define as educated or uneducated, all the skills we use for govern change radically over generations and over civilizations. The set of values that we internalize as being good, educated citizens are often arbitrary class constructs that we ourselves have internalised as making us good and knowledgeable and intelligent. And they sometimes do not, in fact, correlate to the best interests of the country, which we better listen to by listening to voices outside of that knowledge.
2: And but what about the heart of Corinth's argument, which is people with better education are more likely to be better at governing? Don't you think that's the case?
3: I think often it can surprisingly not be the case. Yes, there is a correlation that, you know, people who learn about and read about the world might be better at governing it, but then often not quite as good as they think.
2: Let me ask you this, let me ask you this, Amy. Do you think that the people in this room, having attended a great university, Cambridge University, are... As a result of the education you're receiving here better equipped to govern than if you didn't have this opportunity? I'm quite radical about this, no. No?
3: I think no. And the reason I think no is that like a lot of what has gone wrong is that we have internalized that internalizing certain sets of cultural <coughs> educational norms, certain sets of prescriptions to society will make better decisions when in reality if we are more grounded in our communities and more grounded in, for example, workers, craftsmen, tradesmen, and those decisions, we might make decisions which don't just entrench that inequality and entrench our own feelings of intellectual superiority.
2: And so you think that there's a sense of intellectual superiority that's unjustified, and that it's often a cover for governing in one's own interest, back to Uni's point, rather than... Truly equipping citizens to govern, to identify and to govern by the common good. Now, I, I want to I, I want to ask about. I want to shift from the mid 19th century debate and John Stuart Mill's proposal to the way things are now with democracy, with representative government in Britain and in most democracies. What proportion of citizens of the UK have university degrees, would you guess? Anybody, what will be your guess? Just call it out. 80 or 18? 80. 80, 80%, you think 80% have university degrees? <laughs> Guess. <laughs> What's your name? George. George says 80%. Who, who has another estimate? 50? 50. What's your name? Uh, Christian. Christian says 50. Who's closer, George or Christian? 80 or 50? 50. I Yes. It's no more than about 25. Yeah, it's well, th- roughly thirty percent in Britain. Currently, about just under fifty percent of school leavers go to university, but that's a new thing. So previously, in my generation, it was about fifteen percent. Yeah. So generally speaking, um, neither Georgian nor Christian is terribly close to the mark. It's actually around thirty percent. Clearly the minority, 30% in Britain and in Western Europe, roughly speaking, have university degrees. In the U.S. it's about 35%. So in all of the advanced democracies in, in Britain, in Europe, in the U.S., only around one in three or fewer have university degrees. Now... That means that seventy, approaching eighty percent, do not. Now, what? Uh, how many of those without degrees are currently? Uh, what percentage um, of members of parliament do not have university degrees? About uh, five. Well, it's it's about uh, one in twelve, less less than ten percent, one in twelve. And in the U.S., it's only five percent. So, here's our next question: How many find it objectionable that most members of parliament? have university degrees, most of the country does not and only a tiny fraction of those who do not have university degrees have members of parliament. How many find it, let's take another vote? Uh, Is this objectionable or is it unobjectionable? How many say it's objectionable? And how many do not consider it objectionable? This is a very different vote from the first vote. This vote seems roughly divided. Here's the obvious question. If the reason most people objected to John Stuart Mill's proposal for plural voting was that... If everybody's governed by the laws, everyone should have an equal say in enacting the laws, Sammy's reason, or that the well-educated are likely to govern in their own interest, uni's reason. The obvious question is this. If those reasons were compelling objections to John Stuart Mill's plural voting scheme, why are they not equally compelling objections to the system we have now? Who has an answer to that question? Yes. I think it's because we're T- tell us your name first. Thomas.
3: Thomas. I think it's because we're trying to solve different problems at different points in time. Uh, and- so, for example, how I would perceive it with the vote, we try to find out what we want and to aggregate that and who's best, who bids best to fulfill that. And then once they're elected, they specialize and take those little cognition tasks to execute them. And under Mills' proposal, the problem is that we would undermine who, how we select what we want. And who's fit to fulfill that? And that would be, in my opinion, a problem. I agree because I agree with Mill.
2: You voted against Mill, but you're not against the current practice. Yes,
3: because it fulfills the functional purpose that we're trying to fit. It's a division of labor.
2: Thank you for that. And what's your name? Liam. Liam.
3: On the principle of representative democracy, anyone can put themselves forward. And we're choosing them to represent us at the end of the day. So, if we're
0: choosing 90% of them to be university educated, yes. that is the choice of the inclusive of the 80% who are
2: not university educated. So, it is there more choice to choose educated people to be,
3: or what they subjectively define as educated people to be their representative?
2: All right. Okay, so here's let, let's let let people respond. Do you, do you Do you have a response to that? You heard Liam's and Thomas's argument that if, if everyone gets a vote and elects 90% of parliament with degrees, the people have chosen, the people have spoken. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing to object to. What do you say to that? And tell us first your name. Willa, Willa.
1: Most the people who can run and afford to run as MPs actually must have enough of income in the first place. So it's not you it's not truly like we have a choice of enough working class people in the first
2: place Because it takes money to run yeah. and to to be seen as qualified to compete. Willa, right? Alright, so there's one reply to Liam and Thomas. Who who else would like to reply? To. Yes. And what's your name? Daniel. I think there is a perception in the UK of Parliament
3: as being a place of the educated. And so I think that there is a predisposition whereby those who are interested in the issues and those who have aspirations to politics and to Parliament will take steps to educate themselves before attempting to run the
1: Parliament. So I think that there's simply a bias. There, as a result of uh,
3: the pre existing perception.
2: So, the pre existing perception we have, Daniel says, is that Parliament is a place for well educated people. And this shapes the way elections happen. But do you think so? How did you vote, though, Daniel? Did you vote that it's objectionable or not? I
3: said it wasn't objectionable. I said it wasn't objectionable.
2: Was not objectionable because we already have a bias, a tendency to think that parliament is a place for well-educated folk. But the question we're debating is whether that bias is well-founded or not. And you say? I'm saying that it's a good bias. It's a desirable bias.
3: I'm not saying it's either, I'm saying it just is. And that means that people who have aspirations to go to parliament will take sex to educate themselves before, rather than
2: to go in and to it, they All right, uh, who else, who else would like to reply? Yes, yes, and tell us your name. My name's Florence. Florence. Networking, knowing people, Mullah we'll said, having coming from a well-off family very often. But how did you vote? Is it objectionable or not? I voted for the last vote that it is objectionable. Uh, sorry, that it's uh, okay. It's okay. It's okay. The- Okay, but is that? But what we're trying to ask is, is that a good thing, or that a, that so many prime ministers have been to Oxbridge is that a good thing or a bad thing? Florence, you think it's a bad thing, but let me put to, and let me put to you the question I put to Sammy. Don't you think you say it's a bad thing? Don't you think that the education that you and everyone in this room is receiving at Cambridge equips you? to be more knowledgeable about public affairs, better equipped to, to reason about the common good? <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good answer. <laughs> All right, I want just to, people now to reflect on the two votes we took. How many voted against, how many found themselves in the position of voting against John Stuart Mill's plural voting, but found themselves defending the existing pattern where very few without a degree wind up in parliament. How many found themselves in that position? So you are the ones, quite a few, who have to work out a principal distinction between them. Now, Sammy, you were consistent, I mean on the face of it, because you object to Mill's proposal and you object to the current system. And Corrine, you, you're also consistent because you said John Stuart Mill's idea of giving more votes to the better educated will lead to better governing. And you voted, am I right, that it's fine that Parliament is disproportionately well educated. But unless you condemn both or embrace both, as Sammy and Corin from different directions do, you have at least a challenge, a prima, facie, a prima facie challenge to explain what is the principal distinction between the two. Now with this debate, we've not resolved it. A number of you still have some work to do to think through the principal distinction where you voted in prima facie different directions in the two cases but let's connect this to the question of meritocracy more broadly and to the question of whether merit is a kind of tyranny now to see how merit becomes a kind of tyranny we need to look back at the last few decades, a time when the divide between winners and losers in our societies has been deepening, poisoning our politics, setting us apart. This divide is partly about the widening inequalities of income and wealth in recent decades, but it's not only that, it has also to do with the changing attitudes towards success that have accompanied the rising inequalities. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that they therefore deserve the full bounty that the market bestows on their talents. And by implication, that those who struggle, those left behind, must deserve their fate too. This way of thinking about success arises from a seemingly attractive ideal, the principle of meritocracy, the principle that says, insofar as chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings. In practice, of course, we know that chances are not truly equal children born to low-income families tend to stay poor as adults we know this despite our strenuous efforts sometimes not so strenuous to create more genuine fair equality of opportunity we've we've imperfectly realized that principle to say the least How easy is it to rise one generation from the next? The OECD did a study of countries in uh, advanced democracies and they asked how many generations would it take at current levels of intergenerational mobility, how many generations would it take for a person born into a low-income family to rise to the median, not to the top, but to the median. In Denmark, which has quite high rates of mobility, it takes two generations. What do you think the figure is in Britain or in the US? What would you guess? Four to five, Seven. It's five, five generations. So one might conclude that the American dream is alive and well and living in Copenhagen. (laughs) There are other measures in the United States at Ivy League universities. Despite generous policies of financial aid, there are more students in these places from families in the top 1% of the income scale than there are students from families in the bottom half of the country put together. Now, one might consider this shortfall from the meritocratic principle and say, we have to work harder, we have to double down on the meritocratic ideal. The solution is to try more earnestly to bring everyone up to the same starting point. But the problem is not only that we fail to live up to the meritocratic principles we proclaim. There's a deeper problem, which is that the idea itself has a dark side, and the dark side is this. Meritocracy is corrosive of the common good. It leads to hubris among the winners, and humiliation For those who lose out, it leads the successful to inhale too deeply of their own success, to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way, to forget our indebtedness to those who make our achievements possible. And it leads the successful, in virtue of this attitude, to look down on those less fortunate than themselves. Which brings us to our current political moment. One of the most potent sources of the populist backlash against elites is the sense among many working people that elites look down on them. And it's a legitimate complaint. Michael Young gave... First public expression to the, to the term meritocracy. In a book, he wrote a short book in the late 1950s called The Rise of the Meritocracy. He was on to this point. He was on to the tendency of meritocracy to generate hubris among the winners and resentment among those left behind. In fact... When he coined the term, his little book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, was not a celebration of the meritocratic ideal. It was a worry. It was a dystopian critique of the meritocratic ideal. He was writing at a time when, after the war, the class structure was beginning to break down in Britain. Young people from working class families were beginning to be able to gain admission to good schools and to good jobs, and all of that was a good thing. But he worried that as the meritocracy gained momentum, it would reshape attitudes toward success in ways that would deepen the divide between winners and losers, that would make people feel and believe that they were responsible for their fate. Now, there's something exhilarating about a public ethic, a public philosophy that tells us that we are responsible for our fate. We are responsible for where we land. It gives us a potent sense of responsibility and seems to be the ultimate expression of human agency. I am the master of my destiny. You can make it if you try. It's exhilarating, but it is also, when fully played out, deeply debilitating and corrosive of a sense that we are all in this together, corrosive of the solidarity that can arise when we reflect on the role of luck in life, on the contingency and accident to determine our fortune, our income and wealth, our power and prestige, our ability to share in democratic government. Now, looking back at the last few decades, I should say this, Michael Young predicted that gradually the resentment would gather as the meritocracy became more deeply entrenched, more fully worked out. And he predicted that there would be a revolt, a populist revolt against the meritocratic elite in the year 2034. He was right, except that revolt arrived 18 years ahead of schedule, when Britain voted for Brexit and when America elected Donald Trump. those events and the persisting anger and resentment and politics of grievance that roils our politics is connected, it seems to me, to the tyranny of merit. For even as globalization in recent decades brought deepening inequality and stagnant wages The proponents of globalization offered workers some bracing advice. What did they say? They said, if you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to university. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. We heard this not only from conservative politicians, from laissez-faire free market politicians like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. We heard it especially from the center-left politicians who succeeded Reagan and Thatcher, Tony Blair in Britain, Bill Clinton in the United States, and also Barack Obama. What these elites across the political spectrum failed to notice was the insult implicit in their advice. The insult was this, if you didn't go to university, And if you're not flourishing in the new economy, your failure must be your fault. And so it's no wonder that many working people turned against meritocratic elites. So what should we do? It seems to me we need to rethink three aspects of our civic life. The role of higher education, the dignity of work and the meaning of success. We should begin by rethinking the role of universities as arbiters of opportunity. Those of us who spend our days in the company of the credential of the credentialed can easily forget a simple fact, as we discussed just a moment ago. Most of our fellow citizens do not have university degrees. So it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition for dignified work and a decent life a university degree that most people don't have. Encouraging people to go to university is a good thing. Broadening access for those who can't afford it is even better. But it's a mistake to think that telling people, encouraging people to go to university is in itself a solution to inequality. We often think that mobility, upward mobility through higher education is the answer to inequality. But this is a mistake. It's a mistake in part because higher education is not the potent engine of upward mobility we often assume it to be. Some economists recently did a study of 1,800 colleges and universities in the United States, selective and non-selective, public and private universities, 1,800 of them, and it asked the following question, what percentage of students in these places came from low income families, bottom 20%, and rose to affluence, top 20% as adults. The figure, what would you guess? 20%, who else would guess? 5, it's being bid down as we go. Eight, 2%. Only 2%. Now, this isn't because attending university doesn't improve one's opportunity to earn in a career. The problem is so few students from poor families go to university in the first place. Higher education is like an elevator in a building that most people enter on the top floor. That's why it's not a potent engine of upward mobility. So we should recognize that individual upward mobility is not an adequate answer to inequality. We should focus less, therefore, in our public discourse in public policy, focus less on arming people for a meritocratic race, and focus more on dealing with the structural inequalities directly, and focus more on making life better for those who lack a diploma, but who make essential contributions to the common good through the work they do, through the families they raise, and the communities they serve. This means putting the dignity of labor at the center of our politics. It means remembering that work is not only about making a living. It's also about contributing to the common good and winning social esteem and recognition for doing so. Robert F. Kennedy, one of my political heroes, put it, well, half a century ago. He said, fellowship, community, shared patriotism, these essential values do not come just from buying and consuming goods together. They come instead from dignified employment at decent pay, the kind of employment that enables us to say, I helped build this country. I am a participant in its great public ventures. This civic sentiment is largely absent from public life today. We focus, when we focus at all, on distributive justice. That is, when we concern ourselves with the allocation of the good things in life. When we reach beyond trying to maximize GDP, we we tend to focus on distributive justice. But we need also to focus on something else, on what might be called contributive justice, which is not only about what we earn, how income and wealth are distributed. It's also about opportunities to contribute in some meaningful way to the economy, to the society, and to the common good, and to win recognition and honor for doing so. It's tempting to assume that the money people make is the measure, the true measure, of their contribution to the common good. But this is a mistake. We know it's a mistake if we reflect, even for a moment, On whether we really believe, for example, that, well, think of your your best teacher in school, your most inspiring teacher. You can probably remember his or her name. Think of that teacher. And what did that teacher get paid in a year? And now think of someone who makes more money than that, a lot more money than that. Lionel Messi, for example, what, or, or um, Cristiano Ronaldo. What do they make? Anybody? You're, well, it's about two. I think Ronaldo now makes about two hundred and two hundred fifty million a year, something like that. Now, do you do you really think that? What Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo contribute to the economy, the value of their contribution, is what's the ratio? What would it be? 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 times greater than the value of the contribution of your best teacher. Even ardent defenders of free market economics would be hard pressed to make that claim. So this is to suggest that what counts as a valuable contribution worthy of honor and recognition and pay can't simply be read out from the verdict of the labor market. It's a moral question that we as democratic citizens have to think through, reason about, and decide. Martin Luther King Jr. explained why just before he was assassinated. He traveled to Memphis, Tennessee to speak to a group of striking sanitation workers, garbage collectors. And what he said to them was this, the person who picks up your garbage is in the final analysis as significant as the physician. Because if he doesn't do his job well, disease will be rampant. And then he added, all labor has dignity. We saw this. We experienced this. All of us did. For a brief moment, it seems, during the pandemic. You remember? When those of us with the luxury of working from home or studying from home, couldn't help but recognize how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. Delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, health care assistants, childcare workers. These are not the best paid or most honored workers in our society. But during the pandemic, for a time, we were calling them key workers, essential workers. We were applauding them. At the end of the day, do you remember? We were putting up signs and posters thanking them. It could have been a moment for a broader public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the importance of their contribution. But it didn't happen. That moment passed, the pandemic receded, and we're back more or less to business as usual. So we need to rethink the role of higher education, the dignity of work, and also finally, we need to rethink the meaning of success. This is not a simple matter because it involves not only moral and political argument. It may also involve a kind of spiritual turning, reconsidering the meaning of our success, questioning our tendency toward meritocratic hubris. Do I morally deserve the talents that enable me to flourish? What about the fact that I live in a society that happens to value the talents I have in abundance, is that my doing? Or is that my good luck? If Messi and Ronaldo had lived during the time of the Italian Renaissance, they wouldn't have made so much money. They weren't, not because they would have been less gifted athletes, but because back then they didn't, care so much about football. They cared more about fresco painters. So this, too, is a matter of accident and contingency for which I can claim little or no credit. Insisting that my success is my due makes it hard to see myself in other people's shoes appreciating the role of luck in life, remembering the ways in which I'm indebted for my achievements, this can prompt a certain humility. There, but for the accident of fate or the grace of God or the accident of birth, go I, that could be me. This spirit of civility Sorry, this spirit of humility is the civic virtue we need now. It's the beginning of a way back from the harsh ethic of success that drives us apart. Such a spirit of humility might point us beyond the tyranny of merit toward a less rancorous, more generous public life. Thank you all very much.
0: So, I think we'll have time for one or two questions at most. Um, Just to kind of kick things off with one question from me. Do you think that perhaps in a world where redistribution becomes sort of ideally realised, that where meritocracy is realised to its fullest extent, where there is redistribution and equal opportunity is spread, do you not worry that the elite that arises from that might embody that entitled ethic all the more. Because there's almost like what you mentioned regarding, what you'd mentioned regarding the problem of meritocracy, that the more properly it's realized, the more arrogant the elite becomes. So almost social democracy needs more than just social democracy, it's almost with humility. Yes, okay, well, I do
2: see the force of the question, and it's a question that's important because it begins by seizing this paradox Mm. that if the ideal is flawed because of the attitudes towards success that it promotes, then the more fully we realize genuinely equal opportunity, the tighter the hold Mm -hmm. will be those attitudes on our self-understandings. That's the, the paradox. And once one sees the force of that paradox, we see the need, I think, to move beyond meritocracy as an animating ideal. Now, that does not mean giving up on the project of equal opportunity. Nobody should be held back by poverty or prejudice. So we should do everything we can to bring about a truer fuller equality of opportunity, but remembering as we do that, as we strive for a fuller equality of opportunity, we need to remember that equality of opportunity is a necessary principle for a just society, but not a sufficient one, because it's a remedial principle. It's about overcoming Poverty and prejudice and bias and discrimination. (laughs) But it can't by itself generate the sense of solidarity and common purpose and mutual responsibility that a healthy democracy requires. And this is especially where we take the metric of merit, the measure of merit, as money, the money people make, or the market valuations, the way the market values various contributions, which means moving beyond a meritocracy requires a morally more robust kind of public discourse than the kind to which we're accustomed. It's almost as if Nick, we have in recent decades outsourced to markets our moral judgment about Mm. what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good, which is why people in finance make such multiples greater than uh, care workers, for example. That's on us. That's for democratic citizens to decide how to organize the economy and social life in a way that reflects, people's, uh, reflects reflect people's values. Now, you might ask, if equality of opportunity is not sufficient for a, a, a good society, does that mean we have to have equality of, out, what some call equality of outcome or equality of result? And that's not what I'm arguing for, where everyone has the same income and wealth. The alternative I have in mind might be described as a broad democratic equality of condition where everyone, however, even though some may make more and others make less, everyone is able to, has the opportunity to contribute something of value and to win uh, uh, honor and recognition and dignity for, for doing so. And for that, we need to reconfigure the economy, but I also think we need to reconfigure civil society. If I could just add, I know I'm going on longer maybe than the question uh, required, but one of the corrosive effects, that the widening inequalities of income and wealth have had in recent decades is that those who are affluent and those of modest means increasingly live separate lives. We live and work and shop and play in different places. We send our kids to different schools. This isn't good for democracy. Democracy does not require perfect equality. But what it does require is that people from different social backgrounds, different walks of life, encounter one another, bump up against one another in the course of their everyday lives. Because this is how we learn to negotiate and to abide our differences. And this is how we come to care for the common good. So a broad democratic equality of condition would have to bring about not only a change in the economy and the way we value labor and the dignity we accord work in the traditional sense. It would also have to create deliberately, try to create, to rebuild, class mixing institutions that bring us together in a shared space in public spaces common spaces of shared democratic citizenship
0: we have time yeah yeah okay i think that's just about all we've got time for that being said I believe that we're going to have 10-minute book signing prior to, um, prior to Professor Sandel leaving. We only have cash for today. Can we have a show of hands for anyone that sort of bought cash for books? Does anyone? Yeah, we've got, yes. So the book signing will just take place there. It will take two minutes or so to um, set up. Professor Sandel, thank you so much.
1: (laughs)